to the open side. Karim Bete. Hufflegal here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete. Back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby, where the people's podcast providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that is played in heaven. I'm your host, Ando. With me is Mitch and Lockie. And tonight we will be covering the Aussies abroad and a new segment, Wallaroos versus Fijiana, Super Rugby Pacific Round 13 and the Match of the Week. So, Lockie, you had a pretty busy travel schedule. Can you tell us what you were doing yesterday uh, on your kind of other side of life, which is not super rugby podcasting? (laughs) Back in club land. Yes, been running around this weekend. was across in Adelaide uh, yesterday covering uh, their round six, which was excellent. Lots of good results out there and massive crowds, um, which was really good to see. There would have been a couple of thousand um, packed in around across the four grounds that I got to, which was great. And good to see a big crowd at Ladies Day at Old Collegians against Burnside. So very enjoyable Saturday, albeit a busy one. Excellent, mate. Well, you put in some, definitely put in some miles for rugby. So thank you for your efforts there. And Mitch, I saw you last night. So I mean, I don't really need to ask how you how you've been in the last like eighteen hours. But how's your week in a broader sense been? Busy, and we've had two games of rugby yesterday. We got two together, so we're roaring and ready to go tonight to talk about all things Wallaroos, Waratahs, and all things in between. Yeah, yeah. Well, somebody else played. I don't really care about the other matches. The Wallaroos, like, it's so good. It's so good to go and watch two games of rugby and have your team win both of them. Like, it's such a rarity that I was just so stoked last night to come and come home, just be like, yeah. They were both good wins. How good is that? I mean, Mitch, you must have been pretty happy on a drive home as well. Yeah, no, good performances by both teams. Um, wasn't really sure how the Wallaroos were going to go realistically leading into it. So I'm um, happy we got the W, but we're probably getting ahead of ourselves a bit too much. Let's dive into the tipping comp first and we'll um, go through the results from that uh, before we get into... Uh, the rest of the podcast. So if you, uh, I guess it's probably a little bit too late to kind of join the comp now. We're only a few <laughs> rounds to go to the end. You might be able to beat me actually. I'm 115th. So if you want to jump in and see how you go, um, I'm lagging down the bottom there. But uh, Jojo Rabbit or Dan G still in first place and has been for the last few weeks. 61 points. He's on. Um, followed closely by Paul W or Team Laup. Uh, he's also on 61 points. So he's closing in, closing that gap. Uh, he's just a little bit off the margin there and then third place we've got paul f or s blanco on 60 points so pretty tied up the top of the comp uh, only a few rounds to go it'll be interesting to see who can hold on through the finals and take out the the trophy at the end of the year we're awarding that to the um top 17 aren't we the top 17 best top 89 actually right? revised as a oh, top 89 yeah. okay yeah and mitch top Not- 115 according to you yeah well, if this is coming out of your pocket, then definitely. If it's coming out of my pocket, then we're probably not awarding any prizes. So on that point then, um, we've got our regular calls to action. And if you love what we do and want to support us putting the top 17 players in our in our competition uh, with a bit of a reward or on the... On the on the trophy, then please consider going to ko-fi slash i've forgotten i don't even have it up in front of me. Coffee.com slash and drive pick and drive rugby thank you and looking to give us a donation a one-off a monthly payment any little bit counts and then secondly please join our discord channel to be a part of the best australian rugby community going around the link is on any of our social media profiles so i think without any further ado let's jump on into things with our aussies abroad and new segment let's go let's go And back into Aussies abroad, all abroad, whatever you want to call it, it's how our Australian players are faring overseas. And it's been a big week. It's been a big week for our Aussies abroad, and we'll start over in the UK with the graphic up. Uh, semi-finals have come and gone now in the Premiership with Northampton and their stack of Aussies, including James Ram, being knocked out of the semi-final race. They lost to Saracens, and they'll take on uh, Sale in the final in a couple of weeks. So plenty going on there. 
couple of whispers that we might have a few of those Aussie players coming back to Australia from the UK, but we'll touch on that at the end as well. Japan is where there's been plenty of Aussies in action and Bernard Foley was in the spotlight this week. He kicked 12 points in the Japan League One Grand Final. His Kubota Spears finally knocked off the previously all-conquering Saitama Wild Knights, denying them of a third straight title. And Marika Korobetti on the losing side for once there, which is a rare sight to see in Japan. But good to see Foley still running around and maybe keeping his name in the Wallaby mix. We'll see how it all pans out as we get through the season. But pretty exciting to see another 10 pulling strings in Japan, Mitch. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always been saying that, uh, we spoke about it a little while ago, but I've always thought that Foley is in the selection for the World Cup. Um, we don't know what, at, at the moment, we're not really 100% sure on what Quade Cooper's fitness levels are. He's only sort of just come back. Samu Krevi's also only come back this week as well, uh, playing some footy and getting a few minutes into the boots. But Foley has performed so well over there. And as you said, he kind of steered that team to the victory. Um, he's definitely got to be in discussions with uh, Eddie Jones and the, the the wider training squad to see if he will do a task for them, snatch and grab, as we've been speaking about for a while. I know Ando's sort of sitting on the fence and really hopes Foley doesn't go. Um, but I guess the form that he's in at the moment, he's at least putting his hand up, do you think? Oh, look, he's definitely putting his hand up, but... I don't know, mate. Um, form in Japan isn't necessarily form for competing at a World Cup. And so I'm not sure if we need two players who are kind of of the same age and same stage of their career who haven't been playing with the players in and around them. I'd much prefer you, you pick one of them and say that that's my experienced head. And then I have a couple of other players that have maybe been more in and around the team for a more consistent experience over the last few years. It'll be exciting to see how that one pans out. And they're not the only Aussies who are getting to the veteran stage and winning championships over across our borders. We've got La Rochelle with Will Skelton and a couple of other Aussies that I'll touch on in a tick winning back-to-back champions titles. They beat Leinster 27-26. They came down from 17-0 and won it in a thriller. It was a cracking game. And Will Skelton in the thick of things, as always. And like we said, with winning games and getting that consistency, do we see Skelton back in a World Cup frame too? I think you have to. Any player that's in a winning European Championship team obviously has to be in the discussion. And when you've got key players like Isaac Rodder and Matt Phillip that have spent the majority of the Super Rugby Pacific season injured, I mean, Isaac Rodder we still haven't seen back yet. Um, It just shows that our locking stocks are in need of somebody who's really experienced and physical within those areas. So he just provides something that nobody else in Australian rugby within a locking stocks does. And he would be a valued, valued part of any Wallaby squad moving forward. Yeah, there's a couple of big names in that La Rochelle side that we could consider both for Australia and for teams that will be coming up against in the World Cup. A Levani Bodhia as a Fijian back rower turned centre who's been arguably the player of that tournament and he'll be coming up against us in the pool stage, which will be exciting to see for the flying Fijians. But also a couple of Aussies, one that you've probably heard of and one that you almost definitely haven't in the La Rochelle side, Tuira Kerbalo. Uh, originally from the Territory. So he's an NT boy in Darwin before going over to uh, Kiwi land and getting a couple of All Blacks caps. Still in discussions for potential Wallaby call-ups. We've been hearing that for a little while, so we'll be very interested to see how that pans out. But the other is, coincidentally, a fella from Adelaide, UJ Tini, who plays across centres and the back three in La Rochelle, has been one of their star performers as well. And it's yet another Aussie who's found their feet overseas, which is exciting to see on one hand, but wouldn't we love to have all this overseas talent back at some stage in Australia, Mitch? It is a massive drain that we've seen over the past few years. And that's, I guess, what's exciting now about um, the next few years for Australian rugby is typically at the end of a World Cup, you see talent leaving Australian shores because, you know, they'll go overseas and try and get big money. But we've got the Lions tour in two years. And so that's seen players stick around for at least the next two years. And, and players, like we briefly mentioned before, coming back um, to sort of stake their claim for selection in that tour. So Lucan Salakai-Loto is one of those players who's uh, rumoured to be on the lookout for an Australian club, not necessarily coming straight back into the Reds. 
which we kind of might have thought from the way that he his upbringing, his experience in, in that team and where he's from. Um, that's that's exciting to see a player of that ability coming back so soon after he did leave the Reds. Uh, and obviously he wants to add more to the Wallabies jersey and he wants to continue that story where he ends up. That's going to be a really interesting one to see. Yeah, and a couple more at Northampton with James Ram, who is English eligible, as I um, found out through Saints Media. It'd be interesting to see whether he's ever considered over that side. And of course, they've still got Angus Scott Young on their books over at Northampton. So plenty to look at in the UK. And we'll stay there for the last section of our Aussies Abroad, where coming up, there is a massive game between the Barbarians and a World 15. Each side has four Aussies. In tow, we'll go through the Barbars first. They'll have Quade Cooper. Samu Karevi, uh, semi-final 2015 hero Rob Simmons in the pack as well, and they'll be coached by Eddie Jones. Whereas on the other side in the World 15, you've got Izzy Falau, Nick Phipps, Marika Korobetti, and Harry Hawkins will be pulling on their jersey as well. So lots on offer coming up for international rugby, but there are a couple of players in there, Ander, that we probably don't want to see injured over the next few weeks. Oh, mate, it's incredibly... Uh... Risky, I guess, in a way. For it, I mean, look, these players need runs under the belt. So Sami Karevi and Quade Cooper, they need match practice. They need match fitness in the lead-up to the internationals in the mid- middle of the year. But, mate, that type of experience where you go over, you don't have a huge amount of prep time as a team together, and then you're going into what's going to be a pretty physical game, I'm worried about it. But at the same time, you get to see Nick Phipps. And who doesn't want to see Nick Phipps play more rugby? So that's brilliant. Any, anything with Nick Phipps in it, I'm definitely 100% supporter of. Love that man. <laughs> it's good to see. And just finally, I missed one Aussie overbroad. We had the, along with the European title, we had the European Challenger Cup final, the Div 2 section that didn't feature two Div 2 sides. It was Toulon against Glasgow. So plenty of Aussies in there. And Duncan Power uh, came out on top with Toulon, 43 points to 19 over Jack Dempsey and Sione Tuipilotu. So plenty going on. All abroad. Brilliant. His brother, Masisi, was brilliant for the Waratahs on the weekend. I thought he was great. So, yeah, very, very keen to see more Tupelotu action. Let's, and let's hope that he can stick around Australian shores and doesn't follow his brother and the money overseas and mm-hmm. signs with Scotland either. All right, let's dive into the news or noteworthy news, we're calling it now. It used to be spicy news, but noteworthy news. So, uh, the first bit of news before we dive in and focusing a little bit on World Cup is this has only come out in the last day or two, but Alwyn Jones has sort of stepped away from Wales and retired from the international game. Ando, was this a bit of a surprise to you considering we're like less than three months away from a World Cup and is this the time to be announcing retiring and stepping away? Yeah, the exact timing was a little bit of a surprise. Um, I'm not as au fait with his kind of injury status over the last 12 months and whether he has been battling with any injuries. So maybe it's a semi-forced retirement. Uh, It could also be that he's recognising that there are up-and-coming, well, quality locks within the Welsh team that would really deserve the opportunity to not kind of have his name or status take away from their opportunities of game time. Um, just because of like who he is and the and the aura and the respect that he commands, but outside of that, I mean, he's an absolute legend of the game. He's played what is it, a hundred and a hundred and forty-one tests for Wales. Um, no, one hundred and fifty-five tests for Wales. Seventeen British and Irish Lions caps. He's got nearly eleven over eleven thousand minutes of international rugby under him. But that's that's an incredible stat. 11,000 minutes of yeah. international rugby. Um, and during that time, he's only ever had three yellow cards, my stats are telling me. So that's, that's, just, that's just one um, for the trivia nights when you get asked that for the jackpot questions. Um, but he's just an absolute legend of the game and very, very much going to miss him playing in my second team's colours. Oh, any chance and can to claim his uh, Welsh heritage, he throws it in there, so... We'll see who he's going for later in the year when it's Wales and Australia vying for that top spot of the World Cup pool. Uh, Sticking on the theme of World Cup, we've had the referees team announced. Uh, So the group of officials that will be overseeing the running of the World Cup. Uh, Some 
I guess some names that are omitted from this list and some names that are included that we probably were a little bit surprised about. In terms of the Aussies, so the teams that have made it who will be featuring on the field, we've got Nick Berry and Angus Gardner um, are the official Australian referees, so they'll be out there refereeing games. In terms of assistant referees, we also have uh, Jordan Way, who's going over there as an assistant as well. So in terms of Aussies, we've got three Aussies represented with Brett Cronin as the uh, a television match official um, representing Oz and flying our flag there. Um, before we sort of dive into who else is included, was there anyone, um, Lockie, that you were hoping might be included from Australia that maybe didn't make the cut or are you surprised in where they were selected? Well, no, that's um, Gus Gardner and Nick Berry going around again. I know they were in Japan, but I'm really excited for Jordan Way. It's a great opportunity for a younger referee who's been putting in good shifts through Super Rugby and cutting his teeth to get this opportunity now. And the more opportunities we can get for Aussie referees on the biggest stage, the better. Because just like for the players, that's a pinnacle for the rest too. So it's super exciting to see. Also having Brett Cronin in the chairs at TMO is great. And I would just love at some stage to see even more referees and hopefully some more Aussie female referees getting the opportunity to do this as well. Yeah, and that's a that's a cool a good point to mention that we've got Joy Neville from Scott uh, Ireland, sorry, that has been announced as a television match official. So she'll be the first female official uh, representative of men's World Cup. So that's really exciting to see. And hopefully, as you said, Lockie, in future years we might get one of them on the touchline and then refereeing a game as well. Uh, Ando, if we look at the group of referees that will be taking charge in the middle of the field, if we're putting forward into the future and you're, you're looking at the Wallabies semi-final game, who are you hoping is going to be holding the whistle in that, in that fixture? Um, I really like Luke Pierce. He's in my mind been a really good referee for a long time combined with Wayne Barnes. Um, Wayne Barnes is probably the preeminent uh, referee within world rugby at the moment. Um, so for me, one of those two, I'd love to be <laughs> refing every single game. Keep Mathieu Reynal the hell away from the Wallabies. I never want him to touch a whistle for a Wallabies game <laughs> ever again. <laughs> All right. Well, well done. Is there anything else anyone wanted to say before we keep moving on about this World Cup team? We've got the World Cup just around the corner. It's pretty exciting. All right, let's keep well, moving. So that then pulls us into the Wallabies and Eddie Jones has officially finished and named everyone in his uh, coaching setup for the World Cup. So to run through the names that Eddie Jones has uh, confirmed, so our attack coach is Brad Davis, defence coach is Brett Hodgson, our forwards coordinator is Neil Hatley, uh, a line-out coach is Dan Palmer, and our more consultant is Pierre-Henry Bronken. Now, uh, there's a few interesting... I guess, titles for some of these coaches in, in how it's going to all fit together. Before we dive into some of the other coaches or consultants that have been put in this team as well, Lockie, what are your thoughts around the makeup of this coaching team and particularly kind of the, the way that Eddie's structured it? It's very Eddie, isn't it? There's a lot of unknown quantities when you look at this coaching setup. A lot of people who've cut their teeth outside of Australia as well. So from, I guess, even viewing Australian rugby as closely as we do, it's hard to get a read on a lot of these coaches. And I think we'll find out a lot about the style of play and the style of structure once we hit the rugby championship, which is realistically our Rugby World Cup warm-up campaign. I'm excited, though, particularly by the addition of Dan Palmer. I've got a lot of respect for him as a scrum coach at the Brumbies and having priors playing there as well. You wouldn't know that he was a former prop by the look of him now. He's trim taut and terrific, but he has done wonders from all accounts. And I know that um, Dan McKellar spoke glowingly of him when he was out of the Brumby system as well for the work that he's done. So seeing him through the set piece is exciting for mine. And also seeing Beric Barnes brought into the fold. I know that Newcastle Knights had him on their books in the NRL as a backline and kicking consultant. And it's really good to see him retain because I also had a lot of respect for him as a player. Uh, particularly um, his defensive kicking and exits, I always thought were a standout when he was at 10 or 12. So a couple of familiar names among the strange crew that Eddie's pulled together. What do you reckon, Ando? Yeah, look, there's a really good um, segment from an article that Chrissy Doran wrote when Brad Davis was named as the attack coach because I think he was one of the last names to be put forward. So I'm just going to quote directly here from Christie's article. The question remains whether the puzzle will come together. 
Davis, a defense coach, is taking charge of the attack. Brett Hodgson, a former Origin fullback turned rugby league coach, is overseeing the defense. Dan Palmer, whose portfolio with the Brumbies has expanded from scrum doctor to overseeing the forwards, is a line-out operator. Pierre-Henri Broncan, a former halfback turned analyst and head coach, is taking charge of the mall. David Rath, former AFL high-performance guru, is a learning consultant. And Beric Barnes, a two-time World Cup, playmaking, uh, World Cup playmaker, has been included as a kicking consultant. So he very much points out the, the people that have been brought in that don't necessarily have the specific expertise in the areas that are overseeing but seem to have particular skill sets and personalities that Eddie wants to be bringing in and obviously believes can be adding the right elements for the very short term, as he's describing it, smash and grab task that is before him and the coaching staff for the Wallabies in this World Cup. So look, I don't have much to add because by the nature of these people out of season, people who like you can prize them away from their contracts at this time of the year, it means you're not getting like the big names mm. in world rugby, we're not getting any of them because they're all taken. So therefore, you're having to either get Aussies who are already in the country that you can kind of get to come do stuff with the Wallabies or people with less specific experience that they're pulling across from different lower levels and not necessarily at the international level. So it's a very interesting mix and um, it, it, we'll just have to see how it goes. When you look at the, the way that Eddie has structured this coaching setup, forwards coordinator, line-out coach, more consultant. Lockie, does that give you an indication of the style of play that Eddie might be leaning towards, that out of his five coaches, three of them are forwards directed? That is interesting to see. And I know that in the past, there's been a lot of spotlight and emphasis on how Eddie manages his forward pack, especially at scrum time. I know there was scrutiny at the 2019 World Cup for his selections at set-piece time that saw them pretty well dominated by the box and then famously in 2003 picking quite a light forward pack and eventually getting out muscled for a lot of that game. So potentially Eddie's surrounding himself with these more hard-nosed operators to try and get a sense of what is exactly required to win a World Cup through the forwards. So I think it's exciting to see that there's this emphasis on the pack. Sorry. Yep, definitely. Um, and to just <laughs> round it off, so the, some of the names that we, we kind of mentioned but haven't officially announced. So Derek Barnes is in as a kicking consultant. David Rath is a learning coordinator. John Clark is a strength and conditioning coordinator. Nigel Ashley Jones is a strength and conditioning coach. John Pryor is a speed consultant. And Warwick Harrington is the sports scientist. Now, it is interesting when you sort of break that down that Derek Barnes, kicking consultant, John Clark, strength and conditioning coordinator, whereas Nigel Ashley Jones is a strength and conditioning coach. What is it? Uh, what's the difference between a coordinator and a coach? Um, kind of makes you you wonder at, at times. But anything else anyone wanted to kind of talk about, or shall we keep moving? I think we keep moving, mate. Got a lot of rugby to get through, and very keen for it. All right. So the last kind of point we've got for our news section is the the sad news in some ways, and. Um, that Georgina Robinson from the Sydney Morning Herald has kind of stepped away from her post as the chief rugby writer and is stepping into her own kind of um, a different career path and doing her own thing outside of rugby. So um, I know, Ando, you were, I guess, shocked in, in a way when this news was announced. What are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I was, I was quite surprised. I mean, I've really respected her as a just person and a journalist for a long time. Ever since I came to really get into and love rugby, she's been kind of the main voice that I've really uh, turned to for a considered opinion that's willing to not that's willing to like not pull the punches if required, but also give fair weight to stories and the um, the people behind the game that we follow. So I've really, really enjoyed her writing. And then in addition to that, we got to meet her briefly down in Melbourne um, for the for the Super Round when we were down there this year. And she was just lovely in person, really, really professional, but also happy to just have a quick chat and be friendly to, to no names that uh, knew about a quarter of what, or maybe an eighth of what she knows about the game. So <laughs> she, was, she was awesome. Really, really enjoyed meeting her. And yeah, just wish her all the best in her new chapter moving forward. That's right. Yeah. So we all wish her the best in what she is doing now outside of rugby. And no doubt she'll still be um, watching and keeping an eye on the Waratahs and seeing how they go and, and sending tweets out every now and then. So make sure you still follow her socials and, and do follow her with what she does next. I think that wraps up our news section for now. So why don't we move across into our Super Rugby Pacific review and our Wallaroos break, uh, breakdown. Let's go. All right, let's go. 
All right, we now move into the games themselves, and there is no better place to start than the Wallaroos' incredibly entertaining win over the Fijian Rugby Nationals team. 22-5 was the um, result, and it was an amazingly entertaining match. Both Mitch and I were out there. We did a quick kind of halftime recap on socials that was put up at the time. Um, But let's start off with you, Lockie. Watching this game... How enjoyable was it? What were your thoughts surrounding it? Give us your immediate reaction. It was fun. It was just a really fun game of rugby to watch and be involved with. I'm very jealous that you were both able to get there for the doubleheader as well. But the style of play, as we saw through the World Cup last year, is is totally different. It's I find it fluid. There's less kicking. There's more positive and attacking rugby. And we saw that on display with two very attacking-oriented sides, chucking the ball from left to right. and Plenty of Wallabies and Wallaroos tries as well, Wallaroos specifically, which was great to see. But for mine, there's one standout, and I'm going to jump on straight away. Ash Masters, what yeah. a star. And if we weren't worried about the depth of back rowers, now we've got another one who's almost walking into a jersey. Mitch, what did you think of her performance? Well, when we saw that she was named at six, there was sort of some questions asked that we've seen her play hooker all year for the Rebels and now... She's been named at six and she did not look out of place. She looked like she was having an absolute ball out there. Uh, Ando and I, the, the the best thing about being at the game is you can see what happens off the ball and how the players kind of set up for what's coming. And we consistently noted that Ash Masters was always putting herself in the right place two or three phases before something happened. It's just the way that she reads the game. She was always, um, she was sort of identifying the way the player was running and popping herself there. And then by the time the ball got to her, she was in space or she was um, getting one-on-one contacts and making breaking those tackles and, and setting up line breaks. So what an absolute performance. And she's just shown, again, that she has this skill set that allows her to play multiple positions across the team. And, and you were also sort of saying at one point that we'll see her playing fly half next. <laughs> yeah, look, um, Ben Kinson, uh, Bennett. <laughs> Atkinson was talking him talking her up on Twitter and I was just saying, mate, she can play any anywhere across the back line. We'll see her at ten next. And half of that was just because of the way she's like dumbing and getting offloads through the through the tackle as well. Just a match full of absolute confidence. Now, in many ways, it was the match that the Wallaroos needed to have because it was the send-off for one of the absolute legends of Australian women's, well, Australian rugby in general. That is Shannon Parry. Now, Shannon is a Olympic gold medalist. She's one of the all-time greats within the Wallaroos circles, um, has played at multiple World Cups and is just an absolute stalwart and figurehead of Australian women's rugby in particular. And she got the send-off she deserved, but by no means was she a passenger within this match, although she's on the shoulders of her teammates being carried off at the end of the game. She was carrying many of them around on the pitch with turnovers, intercepts, bruising tackles, and her never-say-die attitude. Um, Lockie, what legacy will Shannon be leaving? within women's rugby now that she's called time on her career? I think she leaves it in a better place than she found it. And that's all you can ask for, for the people that participate in any way in rugby is to make that contribution and leave it better. And she has. We talked last week about her Olympic legacy. But at the end of the day, she is someone who found rugby at 18 and walked down to a local club in Brizzy to start playing. And now as she looks back, after four World Cups and a gold medal, she's seeing juniors come through the ranks. There's pathways in place for young women across Australia to become Wallaroos, to become these Aussie 7 superstars, and I find her inspiring in every way. So massive credit to her. I'm yep. so glad she got to send yep. off with a win. And I could see at the end, and you might have caught it too in the crowd, how desperately the girls were trying to find her for a pick-and-drive try at the end of the game. Wouldn't have that been the best <laughs> yep. way to go out, but... It's, just a, it's an honour to have been able to watch her career to the extent that we have, and we wish her all the best for her coaching. There was that break um, near the tail end of the match um, where I think it was Ivania Wong ended up going over for a try out wide kind of in the 70th minute. But there'd been a break where a couple of players tried to get it to her and the, the Fijiana team just kept 
just kept shutting it down. But everyone in the crowd just going, come on, come on, you can get it. Just cheering her over the line, getting to the match itself. Um, by no means was this an easy game for the Wallaroos. The scoreline 22 to 5 does show the dominance that the Wallaroos did have. But I think a huge amount of that came from just their defensive solidity. And they made 253 tackles to 140 by Fijiana. They only missed 32 of those, while the Fijiana team missed 35 of basically half theirs. So it just shows the way in which the Wallaroos team just had such integrity within their defensive line and were able to stop that rapid offloading strike play that the Fijiana team are so renowned for. Mitch, defense was obviously a big part of it, but what else do you think contributed to the Wallaroos win this weekend? Uh, their, their back three players all looked dangerous with the ball in hand, and whenever they got them, Maya Stewart particularly, whenever she got the ball in her hand, she looked like she was going to score even if it was in her own 22. She's just mm. a player that is able to sniff out a break like nothing else. Um, the, just the raw ability, the, the raw um, pace that she has, the ability to get over the defender that's coming in in defense. Uh, so exciting to watch. The crowd erupted every single time she touched the ball. Now, whether that's because she's New South Wales girl who's the crowd have been cheering on for Super W all year and then great to see her consistently get some minutes in gold or just the talent that she is. Um, really exciting to, to watch her play and, and get those minutes. Lockie, who else stood out for you? Uh, I was really impressed by uh, Jazz Hirawai when she came on. Jazz Hirawai, I thought mm. she had a really good stint. And Lane Morgan had set an excellent platform and Hirawai got in there and started running and really finding space around the A defender. She had that break that almost led to the Shannon Parry try and that was just one of her good moments. So that was great to see her come off the bench. I thought uh, Maleka had some good touches at 15, as you mentioned, the back three, but uh, props to the props, actually, when I'm looking through it. I thought hey. Cheatham, Kapani, O'Gorman, Robinson, they had massive games and were really big in that defensive side, shutting down some of Fiji's big ball runners like Rasalea and Tawake. They did a really good job matching up front. Yeah, big time. And I think that um, not only were they accurate in the defense, but they were aggressive within their defense. And you saw that particularly from Brian Cheatham and Eva Kapani. They were just going in for these massive hits. And then what that allowed was the Fijiana team to have their legs cut out from underneath them and players like Grace Hamilton and Ash Masters to get over the ball. And the turnover stats were absolutely impressive. It was, um, I just had them up, it was... The, well, the Fijian team conceded 17 penalties to seven and then turnovers were 11 to three in favor of the Wallaroos. So it just showed that despite the mound of possession and attacking opportunities the Fijian team had, that they weren't able to convert because of the pressure that the Wallaroos were putting on them. So really, really impressive performance. Uh, Mitch and then Lockie, final comments on this game before we then move on. Yeah, I think we've... Um... We're happy with the result, and as we kind of said in our reaction pod, we caught up with Sarah Nagama after the game, and she was just thrilled at the the effort that the girls put in and the way they were able to get the victory, which was awesome to see. But it by no means was like a standout performance from the Wallaroos. Still a fair bit to work on, a lot of drop ball. Uh, they made a lot of uh, line breaks, or they pr- gave themselves opportunities to score points and didn't come away as, as often as they probably need to if they're going up against some of the bigger names in world rugby later in the year. So a good platform to set for the first test of the year, but still a lot to work on. Cool. Lucky. Um, Masters at 10 isn't a bad shout. Three try assists is not a bad way to get started on the <laughs> flank, but I think we're looking at a really interesting battle going forward for those playmaking roles. We've obviously got Arabella McKenzie coming back from overseas at some stage soon, but Dallinger had a really good game at 10. We're seeing some people putting their hands up, and I think that the depth that we're starting to show on the Wallaroos squad is the biggest part of this win, so it's really exciting. And what I might do is finish up with a really quick comment before we move on to the new Wallaroos um, captain comment, but just to say that I think an area for improvement that we will need to see within this team moving forward is the way in which their um, tactical kicking game progresses. So Dellinger really struggled with... um, kicking the ball out on the full. I know that's a simple statement, but she was going for a bit too much territory, I think. So two or three of her touch finders um, didn't reach the sideline. And in addition to that, the kind of midfield kicking game wasn't particularly effective. So I think Jay Trigoning is going to recognize that whilst there were some excellent elements of the game, 
they definitely will need to be picking it up before the Pacific Four series kicks off later in the year. Now, another piece of news about the Walroos. Um, we obviously have Shannon Parry, who has now just retired, and it is an incredible opportunity to be welcoming Piper Duck as the new Walroos captain, the youngest Walroos captain um, ever. So at the age of 22, I believe, um, she will be stepping forward in her captaincy role. She had a bit of a gig on the Stan Sport um, coverage last night. Lucky, did you see any of that? I mean, Mitch and I were at the game and were able to see that they were doing it, but did you catch any of what Piper said? No, no. Well, either way, in my mind, she is one of the best communicators within that Wallaroos team and obviously is a leader on the field and seems to be off the field as well. Mitch, were you a bit surprised when you saw Piper Chosen over somebody like maybe Grace Hamilton? I, I don't think I was surprised. Um, when it was announced, Jay Trugoning and Piper Duck did a press conference, which we got access to via our um, media sort of accreditation. And one of the things that he said in that interview was that Piper has this unique ability to be able to communicate with anyone from any level of rugby, whether it's the the young fan who's, you know, just getting into women's rugby and and starting to watch and wants to be a Wallaroo one day, all the way up to coaches of opposition teams to corporate sponsors, all kinds of things. She just has this knack to be able to have conversations and flow really well, communicate with those players and communicate well with those different levels. And so he said it was in some ways just the fact that she is such a good communicator when she's on the field with the players she just exudes this kind of leadership qualities when she's off the field and she's doing the media um, stuff that we saw on the weekend. She's the perfect person for that. So in a lot of regards, she's the perfect person. And when you hear that, that kind of, um, I guess, shows why she was chosen. And, uh, you know, you can't disagree with that. That That's something that is really hard to kind of develop, particularly in the women's game. And we'll talk about it shortly when we move into what comes next. But when they've got such consistent time off, and they're not like full-time athletes all the time. So they'll play this one test and they have a few weeks off and then they come back into squad. They don't really have the time to be doing those external trainings to try and train up the captain and leadership and all that kind of thing. So um, yeah, good call in my mind. Yep, great shout. Um, well, moving on to the next section there, Mitch, if you wouldn't mind. Um, I think what we're going to be talking now is just the upcoming games. So we've got the 20th of May, um, we've just obviously had that game. And then the next matchup is against the Black Ferns in Brisbane on the 29th of June. Then heading across to Canada, um, where they're going to be playing USA, then the Canadian rugby team. I don't, what are they called? The, the Maple Leaves or something? I don't even know. <laughs> the Women's Canadian Rugby Team. Yeah, I think team. That's, that's the men's team. So I don't know if they're called something different. But Lucky, Lucky yeah. do you know you're, you're well-versed in these things? Come on, mate. No, you've got me on the spot. I'll have to do my research. We'll pull it up later. <laughs> all right. He's human after all. So basically, we're playing um, the Black Ferns in Brisbane in June, followed up by um, the two matches in July over in Canada, and then coming back for our final game of the year in September against New Zealand. So there will be some changes to this, depending upon the the new World 15 competition that is being set up. There might be some more matches moving forward, depending upon whether we get into the Tier 1 or the Tier 2 leg of this competition. But we'll find out more about that moving mm -hmm. forward. Um, Lucky, what do you the think the chances The only thing I kind of wanted are? to say and why I included... Yep. No, you go, you go. Okay, sorry. We've got a little bit of lag going on. Um, the only thing I wanted to kind of highlight when putting it in here is just to, to, to show the fans that we play the 20th of May. So last night, the Wallaroos played their first test of the year. They don't play again until the 29th of June. That's over a month before their next test match. And so it's it's just highlighting the fact that how difficult it is for a team like the Wallaroos to improve week on week. They don't have that consistency in the the, the time together like the men teams, the Wallabies do. So um, even in that time, as you kind of highlighted before, Ando, whether we get those international players back and whether they're available for selection, we're not too sure yet. Um, but it's a difficult thing when these players come into camp, do do the best that they can, play a test match, then all go back to their day jobs and come back in a month and, and then get together. And then they're playing the Black Ferns, you know, the, yep. the team that have got second best in the world at the moment. So it's it's a big ask for the girls, but um, hopefully once we get that and we can move forward into the uh, the World 15 or whatever that competition is called, we can start yep. to see this um, improvement consistency each week. 
And Lockie, moving into that Black Ferns match, what do you think the chances are that the Warriors can get the job done, considering the improvement in their performances against the Black Ferns last year? Well, gee, we went close in Adelaide, didn't we? That was the closest we've run in a long time in that opening World Cup game as well. Clearly, there's been massive shakes and improvements. I think you're hard-pressed to back the Wallaroos against the reigning World Cup champions. And I think what we saw through Alpiki is that there is that incredible depth across New Zealand women's rugby in every facet and every position. And the players that came across to Super W made a big impact. Think of your Amy Rules at the Brumbies. Think of your Karis Dowingers or even your, your Lilia Miles over in the Western Force. So I think we're going to be hard-pressed. I would love to see it. I'm going to be there. I can't wait for it up in Brizzy. But, you know, here's hoping. Maybe maybe in a couple of years we'll start getting those really consistent results and those big wins. Over New yeah, just, just like a blur. Like, here's hoping. Here's hoping. All right. Well, why don't we move on now into Super Rugby Pacific round 13. And I'll quickly just run through the results before we touch on a few of the games involving Aussie teams. Um, I will just say, because we've had a lot to talk about within this uh, episode already, we're probably not going to dive into the team, the matches unless they involve an Australian team. So Moana versus the Crusaders. Moana basically got pumped pretty heavily, 7-41, to 41, somewhat unsurprisingly, really, against the Crusaders. Queensland Reds went down 26-45 to 45 against a rampant Blues team. Highlanders just squeaked over the line against a dogged Rebels outfit that in many ways deserved to be winning that game. We'll come back to that later. Then the Chiefs. I'm not going to say it was a comfortable win, but running ahead victors in a pretty tight fought match against the Hurricanes, 23-12. to 12. The Waratahs getting up in the end quite comfortably, although it certainly didn't feel that way at the stadium, 32-18 to 18 over Fiji and Drua. And then the match of the round was the Western Force getting up 34-19 to 19 over the ACT Brumbies, a really controversial game in terms of the Brumbies' approach to the match and then what it means for them in the final series moving forward. But, Lucky, I might just start with you. Which game do you want to start with outside of the match of the round? I'll rip the band-aid off with my Reds against the Blues, I think. That's the safest place to start for me so I can forget about it more quickly because really what we saw at Suncorp was the Reds' season go from an almighty high against the Chiefs to being back by a thread after a really heavy home loss, which was hard to see. It was hard to take and there wasn't really a stage, even though the margin was three at half time. there wasn't Mm. really a stage I thought we were in it. Mitch, did you catch any of this game and what did you make of it? Yeah, caught bits and pieces. As you said, halftime, I, I watched a, a bit of that first half. And as you said, the Blues really looked quite dominant and the Reds didn't look like they were kind of in it. And the fact that they were down by three at halftime, I thought, well, geez, you know, actually they're holding on. They're holding on by a pinch. And uh, yeah, Blues came out in the second half and kind of just took it to another level. And the thing that and I don't remember exactly why, if whether it was through resting or... Um, through injury, but James O'Connor not playing this week really, I think, hurt the Reds. And we saw last week having that dual playmaker role really help the Reds against the Chiefs. This week, no O'Connor present. It, it didn't do them any good. W- was there a reason why he wasn't playing? Is he injured or was he rested? I know he came off with HIA protocol mm-hmm. in those last few minutes against the Chiefs. Whether that's been tied into a potential rest, I'm not sure. I couldn't comment on it. But mm. we did see that relatively midfield, that relatively new midfield combo of Annan and Fluke get a little exposed, um, especially by the mm. big backs. I mean, Mark Talia's stats yep. are disgusting to look at. It's ridiculous. He had 20 tackle busts, I think, in total. Or ten. maybe yep. that was 10, but I think he had... No, Blues had 11 line breaks. He had three of those. Um, and he was just in it all time. But I was most surprised by how the Blues were able to neutralise the Reds' loose forwards. That was a big standout for me because we saw the dominance that the Blues were able to take, and that's because they had so much ball. The Quickly looking at this, the Reds coughed up yep. 16 turnovers, 16 Jeez. at Super Rugby level, and that's with Fraser McRide on the field, who was outplayed by Adrian Choate, actually, who's a largely unheralded um, Bunnings uh, NPC player with Auckland, I believe, and McWright was outplayed by this um, particular flanker. So that was really interesting to see. And when 
even when the yellow card happened with the 70th minute, Harry Wilson scores, it's at that point 31 to 19. We still conceded two tries with a player advantage. So, and that last one from uh, Jock Campbell, that was hard to watch. (laughs) um... And I guess the disappointing thing for the Reds too in this is that it's Brad Thorne's last home game of the year. So you would have hoped that they could have at least put in a better performance in some regards to see him off. Uh, And from reports, I think uh, old mate Rev was at the game or had friends at the game. And from what he said, it sounded, it it felt like there was a lot of Kiwi fans there more so than Reds. So that's, um, that's unfortunate too, considering the the performance that they put in the week before and what they were, that their season was kind of at that I mean, point. Sometimes the stats do lie, but I think in this case the stats don't lie because you look at the run meters: three hundred and thirty to the Reds, six hundred and eighty-seven to the Blues. Um, possession in the second half was sixty-four percent in the second half, with sixty-nine percent territory, and yet the Blues score four second-half tries, which all get converted um, by Harry Plummer. So it just shows the capacity to the Blues had to off turnover and line break opportunities just make an incredible inroads and the reds defensive um defensive integrity was down at 81 percent of tackles made so they were missing one in five tackles which just isn't good enough when you're playing a team one of the top kiwi teams in particular so there's a lot there's a lot to be um remedied within that performance and it's disappointing when it's on the back of that incredible Chiefs performance from the week before. So it just shows the challenge of having that continuity in performance against some of the top teams within this competition. But let's keep on moving forward and we'll jump now into the Highlanders versus the Rebels. Now, the Highlanders have had probably, I'm not going to say their worst season in the last few years, but it's been a pretty bad season for them. And in this match, I'm going to say something that's a bit weird, but they won. I'm just not sure if they really deserved to win because I think a better team would have put this game away so much earlier. And actually, some of it comes down to the Rebels' failures or the Rebels um, not taking opportunities within the last few minutes and a couple of pretty dodgy refereeing calls. Lockie, am I just talking out of my ass here as an Australian rugby fan or do you kind of agree the Rebels um, really left the game out there on the field? Uh, you, you've known my now long-running campaign to kick <laughs> Highlanders out of the finals, and I'm very sad it didn't happen over the weekend. It's kept them in the fight, and you're right. I think the Rebels did outplay them, and the Highlanders probably didn't deserve this win at the end of the day. But that comes down more to the Rebels' inability to finish off teams. We've seen the second half fade out, so we've seen that inability in the final two or three minutes to make it click. And it happened again when their season was on the line. They've got the ball inside Highlanders 22 with 30 seconds to play. And instead of knuckling down, maybe looking for a drop goal, maybe looking to force a penalty, they're lateral, they're one off the ruck, and eventually the error occurs. So it's really tough to see. And I feel for Rebels fans out there. And I feel for the the lack of merch that might be coming your way after another result like this. But it is, um, it's, it's gut-wrenching because they play with a lot of heart. And I thought yep. uh, Richard Hardwick, Lockie Anderson, Stacey Ely all played really, really well. Hodge did a job at 10. It's obviously a big gap between him and Carter Gordon when it comes to the attacking side of that fly-half role. But at the end of the day, there were, it was a scrappy game, 37 yep. turnovers in total. It was a, it was a mess. So, I mean, the Highlanders were yeah. lucky to get away. And would again. you agree with that, Mitch, as well, that um, the Highlanders were lucky? Yeah. Oh, I haven't actually seen too much of this game, but one of the things that I have um, I have read online and a few comments that have come in from Twitter was that the Rebels kind of had the opportunity late in the game to sort of kick a field goal and ice it, and they never went to it. And a player with Reese Hodge on the field, a player with his boot, that in Dunedin, the conditions inside, that's probably the best opportunity you're going to get to kick a field goal and probably win the game. And the fact that they didn't even go to it once sort of shows the mindset there. So um, it's unfortunate and it would have been great to see the Rebels get that win and, and kick the Landers out of the, the finals because they at the, at the current time, they're probably not playing well enough to be in there, uh, but they didn't do that. Um, I will also just shout out to the, the team, to the fans. I've just realized when I put this graphic together that I've actually chucked the Rebels logo in yeah. twice and I didn't put the Drewer in. So apologies to all our Drewer fans there. But you're much loved. You know we've been massive fans of the Drewer. So. 
Good. I'll, I'll leave you with this one from the um, Highlanders and the Rebels. Uh, the Rebels conceded 18 penalties. And regardless of whether you think it's a tough go from the ref, yep. that is ill discipline at its finest and most damaging. So uh, there'll be a lot of soul searching um, back with Kevin Foote and the Rebels team. And I hope they can make something of their last two rounds because at the moment it looks like they've knocked themselves out of contention. It's one of the weirdest things, the Rebels season, because there's been some absolutely excellent moments. And there were within this game as well. I thought there were times where they looked like a very, very good rugby team much better than the Highlanders but then there were times where there were just inaccuracies a couple of genuinely I thought baffling refereeing decisions um but then also the Rebels players not learning to adapt to how the ref was calling it like that um that the Dickie Hardwick penalty that um gave away the final opportunity that the Highlanders took to win the game. Um, he had been pinged for one a, f- a couple of minutes earlier where by rights, he he had the ball and was pulling at it and should have been given a penalty, but he, he didn't get it. And so he's gone in again, multiple phases, really should not have gone again after he's just been pinged by the referee. He needs to be better. He needs to learn in those opportunities. But then again, I'm sitting at my computer on a Sunday night telling him that and he, <laughs> he, he knows far more than me. He knows far more than me. Um, so we now need to move on to the match of the weekend, which without a doubt was the Waratahs versus the Fijian Drua. Uh, ha, ha. Now, um, I am going to actually stay. Mitch, I've just psyched you out here. No, I've uh, skipped I've just, it. I've just psyched you out. Go back, go back. No, I'm going to, I actually, I think I, we've been going for so long. I think we've said our bit in the instant reaction. So, Lockie, have you got anything to say before Mitchell, we dive into... If, if you actually trusted me, that's exactly what I was about to do before we moved on. But anyway, Lockie, your thoughts on the Waratahs because we've, we've already covered it in our instant reaction pod. Excellent. Well, I'm glad. And I had a good listen as well, so I won't add too much to it aside from another good win. Um, but that's all down to defence. Mm. You've got five Tars players who made 20-plus tackles. Harry Johnson-Hole tackled his tail off with 28, which was incredible to see from a front rower. And uh, Jorgensen, please pass with two hands. I know it looks great and you've set up a couple of tries, but for my heart's sake, <laughs> let's get it in two hands and get those skill sets down because he's going to be a hell of a player. I just want to say it in the right way. Yep, very well said. Well, moving on now to the actual match of the round, I'm going to hand this one over to you, Lockie. So take the wheel, my friend. Happy days. Let's flip across to what was probably in many ways the result that the Brumbies needed. I think going into this game across to Perth, they've rested a lot of their Wallabies. It's been all across the media and they've come back without anything, not even a bonus point, 34 points to 19. The four scoring four tries, four conversions, two penalties to the Brumbies, three tries and two conversions. It's a big result for Super Rugby. It puts the Brumbies potentially out of a home semi-final now and it puts the force back into the top eight. Mitch, starting with you, did the Brumbies make an error here? Did they underestimate the force? I think um, there's a lot of talk that's been going on with the kind of wallaby rest protocol and whether you, what we, we don't as pundits kind of really know exactly what RA is saying, what Eddie Jones is saying to teams. Now you get the impression that they've been told that they need to rest their wallabies and they've chosen this week to rest the majority of them all at once. I don't know the exact number, but it's like six or seven changes to the match day 23 or the match day 15, even from last week. Um, and it is a, a tighter turnaround. So you would expect that they they were confident in the players that they chose coming into it. But the force showed up. And it's one of those things that as coaches throughout the season, you know you've got to rest your Wallabies. And we've been talking about it throughout the year. Uh, I don't think it's the right thing to be resting all of your Wallabies at once. Why not rest one or two game in, game out, and just sort of gradually spread that throughout the year? And I think the Brumbies have kind of shot themselves in the foot in this decision, in this outcome. It certainly looks like it from the outset. And we saw that even though the Brumbies started fast and almost had a try in the first minute, in a flash, the force are three tries up after the 20-minute mark. And oh, were you expecting this kind of result when you see the force, who were four from four at home, 
to suddenly blast out of the blocks against the Brumbies. What were you thinking as a spectator at this point? Uh, well, before the game, I didn't really give it much thought because I just assumed that the Brumbies would win. And I didn't pay enough attention as I probably should have in terms of the Brumbies lineup because I know the Force have been playing really well at home and they're, they're a decent team without a doubt. But I, um, I just assumed that the number two ranked team would be able to put away the force. Uh, and then when it got to what, 23 or 24 minutes in, and there's basically been a point a minute to the Western force. I just thought, mate, Stephen Larkin has made a massive, massive mistake. And although there was a bit of a fight back from the Brumbies, the force were too good, too good at home and just, just held them back. So there was a really, really impressive performance for a force team, which in a latter part of this season has shown where Simon Cron is taking them and what they might well be able to offer in the next year or two if they can keep a few of these players around at the force moving forward. For sure. And it's the kind of win that keeps their season alive and keeps their finals hopes firmly in place. They were, from what I remember, 10th heading into this round and they've shot back up into contention and they've got two games to make their first ever finals appearance a reality, which is super exciting for the Sea of Blue. Mitch, I want to quickly talk about Max Bury mm. at number 10. He's had a handful mm. of games. You would have talked about him, you and Ando, through Shoot Shield. You've known him more than me. He's come out in his third start as a 10 and he's gone 14 carries, four broken tackles, He's kicked all six of his goals and he has outpointed the Brumbies' back line and Jack Debrasini, who's starting, in almost every facet of this game. Pretty good pickup for the force now. <laughs> what do you think their playmaking stocks are like with Reese Jan Pasatoa, potentially Ben Donaldson coming across as well? It's getting pretty tight over there. Yeah, what I, um, I guess what I would put that form down to is Simon Cron as a coach. So Simon Cron's known Max Bury for a number of years since he won Shoot Shield with Norse all those years ago, and he's kept in contact with him and he's followed him in the, the previous few years. And now that he's over in the, in the West, he's given him the opportunity. He's brought him into the force and he's um, sort of shaped him and, and coached him to the point where he was confident that he would come on and do a job at Super Rugby. And he's done that. And so that's, I guess that's a, a testament to the type of coach and the man manager that Simon Cron is. And what's probably unique in a lot of ways of his background is that he does have those connections in the shoot shields and he is able to bring those players in. Um, I, the, the question around what happens next and with their, their fly half stocks moving forward, that's, that's tricky to know. We were kind of speaking a little bit about it on the way home from the Waratahs game um, and uh, sort of talking about Ben Donaldson heading over there next year if, if, that, is, if that does come to fruition and it's kind of been reported that might be the case. But then that leaves Rejan Pasatoa, Ben Donaldson, all these guys that are going to be fighting for uh, game time and majority of them are out-and-out fly-halves who probably aren't all that versatile other than maybe Ben Donaldson who can be serviceable at fullback but probably isn't your first choice. So it will be interesting to see what they do. Yeah, that's a really good point because, I mean, the 10... Max Bury has been really, really good. Jake Strawn was serviceable before he got that really bad head knock, which took him out of the game a few weeks ago. He's been back playing club grade or premier grade, um, just kind of getting some um, time into the boots. But it does make me wonder about how many of these reported signings are actually going to be happening. Because do you need Ben Donaldson and James O'Connor to both be going across to the force? Surely it's one or the other. James O'Connor's pulled has he, out. Has that been has that been reported? Yeah, James O'Connor's. Yeah, James O'Connor apparently is close to re-signing with the Reds. Ah, big news, very big news. Um, yeah, that'll be. I think that's a better decision for uh, honestly, in a general sense, rug, uh, Australian rugby. Which I think is why that news is why they're chasing Donaldson now. Another interesting matchup, leaving the fly half discussion in the wayside, was the matchup in the uh, halfback department. I thought that Isaac finds the Lawasa had an excellent game starting at nine for the force up against Ryan Lonigan, who is the almost heir apparent for Wallabies and Brumbies with Nick White moving away. Finds the Wasa running out with two tries to sit at the end of the day, integral to their win. Ryan Lonigan at times, Ando, looked almost a little lost uh, steering the ship from the Brumbies. 
Do we think that Lonergan is still in that frame for Wallaby's selection, even though he hasn't yet had a test? Uh, I think that he's... No, he's trash. <laughs> Can you Get shut up, Mitch? Um, that's very rude and offensive to our Lord and Saviour. Um, <laughs> but in... Yeah, he's still in the equation. He's definitely still in the equation. Um, I think that his, his, his form this season probably hasn't been as strong as he would have been hoping for. Um, his kicking hasn't been as metronomic to uh, get his team in front as much as they would like. Um, his performance, yeah, last night wasn't particularly strong, I'll be completely honest. But he's definitely still there as like the fourth best um, scrum half in Australian rugby. He's just in a bit of a precarious point because there are so many good scrum halves in Australian rugby at the moment. So it's the embarrassment of riches we have in that one position. I think you need to take into account the the circumstances around the and minutes and the way that Stephen Larkham is kind of setting Ryan Lonergan up at the moment. The most minutes that he's got consistently in games has been this week, the loss to the force, and then the, the week where they lost against the Crusaders. And both of those games, they did the same thing. They rested their Wallabies. They brought in blokes who realistically aren't in their starting 23 or are at a pinch, but a lot of debutants, a lot of inexperience. And so he's he's captaining the team. He's the fly half. Uh, he's the halfback. He's got all of these different pressures on him. Things are falling apart. They already come out and concede points quickly in both games. And so I think at that point, he's just sort of trying to figure out what he needs to do as captain to kind of steady the ship, stop the bleeding, stop the point scoring. What can we do to get back in the fight here? Whereas when you look at the games where he's come off the bench, where either the Brumbies are leading or he's just come on with 20, 25 minutes to go, he's looked much better when he can just figure out what he needs to do, focus on his Mm -hmm. game, and he's got those experienced players around him. So I think that needs to be taken into account too. Absolutely. And a good learning experience and good learning opportunity for him as well to be able to lay the Brumbies and steer the ship when it's not all going totally well. So lots to take out of that game. Very exciting for Force fans to knock over the Brums. The first time in a decade, as it turns out, they were mentioning on the standard commentary. So congrats to the Sea of Blue and all the Force fans out there. And I reckon that wraps up our match. How good for Fangar as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you guys heard earlier in the week that uh, once the teams were announced, he kind of put a sledge out and said that the Brumbies are sending their young pups over um, and we're going to eat them up. And they did. All credit to him, they did. Um, And if you don't mind, Lockie, I might just highlight a couple of key players um, across both the teams, or particularly the force, because we've spoken a fair bit about the Brumbies, but Carlo Tizano was absolutely immense. 23 tackles, didn't miss a single one. Um, I thought that as well, Tom Robertson probably had one of his his best games as well. Uh, Robinson had a couple of really nice moments where he was like a second playmaker out the back of one of the forwards pods, um, which was really nice to see him kind of varying his his skill set in a few different areas of the pitch to what he would normally be used to. You've already mentioned Burry, who, Burry, who is just fantastic. But I mean, Sam Spink, in my mind, has been one of the finds of the season. Um, he's probably up there in the conversation for form Australia, well, Australian team 13 um, within the competition. He's, he's been excellent. And I hope that he sticks around and becomes Australian eligible down the track because I think he'd be an excellent competitor and someone to put pressure on that 13 position in a broader sense. Um, so those are just a couple of players that I wanted to highlight from the force who I thought were excellent in the game. And what were your thoughts, Lockie? Did you have anyone else that you wanted to highlight? Oh, not in particular. I think we've covered almost half the force team. I like the way that the entire back row stood up as well. I thought Michael Wells had a strong game, uh, which was really positive to see. Had some good carries sort of in the tram tracks out wide. And uh, Marley Pierce, mm. great to see a local boy coming off the bench, scoring tries. I know he's been picked in the Junior Wallabies squad, which is exciting to see from a local development perspective. And it ties into the interview that you guys ran with Cronny about trying to build that local talent and see these players come through from juniors and then suddenly be in that frame at the top tier. So it was really good to see him pick up a meat pie as well. And what do we think moving forward now for the Brums? Can they can they get their season back on track and, and get themselves back in the top two to secure that home semifinal? They've got a pretty hard matchup. They've got the Chiefs at home this coming week. Um, so obviously Chiefs top of the table only lost, lost the one game and then they're playing the Rebels at home and the Rebels aren't, of, aren't easy beats obviously so 
The problem is more so who the Crusaders are facing. So the Crusaders have the Waratahs at home, and as much as I'm a died in the bull Waratahs fan, they're likely to get full points from that encounter. And then they're playing the Hurricanes away. So unless the Crusaders slip up and the Brumbies win both of their games, it's unlikely that they're going to be getting a home semifinal. Hmm. Yeah. It's a yep, shame. Definitely a shame. Well, on that point, guys, I think we have reached the end of the pod. So I just want to say to both of you, thanks for thanks for chatting some rugby. And and thanks for letting us have the opportunity to particularly pump up our Wallaroos, who it is just so bloody good to see them play and to see the energy and the passion that they had and to see them playing at a massive arena where they deserve to be with a pretty decent crowd there as well. So to everybody, really appreciate your time. Have a wonderful week and we'll catch you in the next one. Have a great time. Bye. See you, everyone.